How you guys doing today? Yeah, you came. The weather's warmer and you're still here. I'm, I'm a little surprised. Um, Dong Hut, Cambodia. It is the most outrageous place to try and get to I, I've ever been. It, GVF missionaries David and Sonia Cram, I have no idea how they ever thought it was a good idea to do an outreach there because just to get to Dong Hut from the nearest like town, it's an hour and a half motor scooters across the most extreme roads I've ever seen. I mean, it really feels like one of those extreme, like, Red Bull motocross events just getting there. It's, it's potholes and cliffs and sand traps, and it's terrible. Like, if you were asking someone to plan out where's a good place to start a church, you would never say Dong Hut, Cambodia, and yet God has a sense of humor. Because six weeks ago when I was there, we met in this little house church, and over 30 of us crammed into this little house. And when I was there, I, I, they, after the service, we actually had a baptism. And uh, I, I shared this with you guys. The, the woman on the far left there, the young woman, she's in her mid-20s. Her name is Shremek. And she is the first and only Christian in her village. And I, 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 don't, I was deeply impacted by that and deeply impacted by the whole baptism. The baptism itself was unlike any I'd seen, not just because we're in a creek in the middle of Cambodia, but because of the seriousness of it. Like it was a celebration to be sure, but this one was a lot weightier than anyone I'd ever been to. And at the time, I did not know that in Cambodia to be publicly baptized was to reject your family and culture. And I didn't know that those who get baptized often get beaten and evicted. And I didn't know that half the people who profess to be Christians end up falling away because of persecution. Like, I didn't know any of that. I just knew that this was beautiful, and it was weighty, and it was serious. And then if you remember, a couple of weeks after I got back, I, I shared this with the church. I got this text from Songy Cram, and it says this, Please pray for Shrey Mech. The people that she rents land from to plant rice are now refusing to let her rent the land, which means no income from her. Also, her dad is threatening to beat her if she does not recant her faith in Christ. And I got that, and I like didn't know what to do about this. I was just like, okay, I'll pray. And then um, let it sit there. So then fast forward four more weeks, and, and this week, Wednesday, I'm sitting there in Starbucks doing what pastors do. It's just wonderful, sitting in a sun-drenched chair, plugged in, gorgeous cup of coffee next to me, studying Philippians 3, 17 through 4, 1, and I, I'm not quite sure what to do with this passage. Like, I, I look at this passage and I read it, and, I, and I, I, I've always imagined the Apostle Paul to be kind of a tough man, you know? I mean, this is a guy who's been beaten, he's been shipwrecked, he's been, you know, bitten by poisonous snakes, and he never seems to complain. Like, this is a man with an extraordinarily high pain threshold, right? So I look at this man, and I always think he's kind of tough, but then I come to this passage, and, um, have you ever seen a grown man cry? I'm not, like, little watering your eyes, but, like, I mean, sobbing, like, out of control, like, can't catch their breath crying. Like, I read this passage, and I'm pretty sure that's where the Apostle Paul is. 
I mean, he, he basically says as much. He's saying this passage. He's, he's, he's writing this. He says his tears are in his eyes. Tears are streaming down his face. And he's, he's piling up all these vocatives. Let's, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord. And he says this. Here's the Apostle Paul. He is strong and fearless and manly. He is the manly apostle. And here he is all choked up. Like all I can get from this passage is that he's desperate. He wants them to stand firm. To stand firm. Okay, so here I am. I'm sitting there in Starbucks and I'm studying through this passage. And the Apostle Paul here, he's weeping over this and he says all this. And then then I'm sitting there and I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. Why is this big, strongly, strong Apostle Paul, why is he weeping like a baby right now? And just then, literally, as I'm studying that passage... Reflecting on this, I get a text from Sonia Cram. You know what it says? Talking about Shrey Mech here. It says, the villagers put pressure on her dad to beat her and force her to stop believing. But he has since stopped doing this to her and been more sensitive to her. Those in the village who were renting the field to her did not let her rent. So this continues to be a tough situation. She will have to find another field to rent and use. I want you to hear this. Her dad was beating her, but he's finally stopped. And she has lost any source of income. Like she's going to starve to death. And then she says this. We praise God that her dad has eased up on her. Keep praying for God to provide a good field for her to rent. She is standing firm in her faith. And and I'm reading Philippians chapter 4. Uh, where the Apostle Paul is blubbering like an idiot. And he's just desperate for them to stand firm in their faith. And then I read this text. And then I read Philippians 4. And then I read the text. And I... I get it. Like when I got that text, I wanted to vomit or I wanted to punch somebody or I wanted to cry. And I get it that the Apostle Paul here, the same struggles that the church had in Philippi are still going on 2,000 years. It's the same pain. It's the same struggle. It's the same heartache. It's the same loss and it's the same hope. And it's the same call to stand firm. When the Apostle Paul first started in Philippians chapter 1, you remember he said, I have heard that you have had the same struggles that I had. Chapter 1, verse 30. The same struggles. You know that the struggles Paul had? He got beaten. He got kicked out of town. He started riots. He got thrown in jail. He got drugged before judges. And he's saying, I've heard that you've had the same type of beatings and eviction and persecution, just like me, just like Shremek, just like Jesus. You know, that's not the thing that makes him weep, though. You want to know what makes the Apostle Paul weep? It's that so many people, when that comes, walk away from the faith and never come back. They don't stand firm. So when we read these texts, uh, Cambodia, Philippi, it feels so far, far away. This is not the world we live in. Nobody's beating you. Nobody's evicting you. We don't face that kind of persecution. Nobody's going to jail. And yet, and here's a question. This is a real question that I don't know the answer to. But I wonder, is it actually easier to stand firm in your faith here or not? There's a real question. I don't have the data. Is it easier to be a Christian here? And I... I wonder if you actually took a count and went through the whole Philadelphia region and counted out every single person who had at one time in their life accepted Christ. And then you followed up with them and you saw how many of them had actually found it too hard and walked away 
walked away from the church, walked away from their faith, walked away from God. I wonder if the numbers would be that much different. I mean, nobody's threatening to beat me, but if I say that Jesus is the only way to heaven, how easy is it to stand firm? Nobody's going to evict us, but what happens if you show up at your next management meeting at work and you start talking about Jesus? What if your kids go to school and the next classroom discussion, they actually reference the Bible? No, uh, no Buddhist priests are going to be out there on the megaphone denouncing us, but I don't care if you're Cambodian or Philippian or Philadelphian. Following Jesus is hard. He says stuff like, love your enemies, forgive, 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 die to yourself. He says, consider that person as better than yourself. He says, trust God with my career, share my hard-earned money. I am no expert in these things. I don't have any stats. But I know that I personally know way too many people who have at one time accepted Christ and no longer follow him. I personally have a number of friends who grew up in church and now want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. One of the guys in my discipleship group, one of the guys in my core Bible study, a Bible study leader, a guy who led many people to Christ in college, now doesn't believe a word of it. And I know too many to count people who have so marginalized and, and privatized their own faith that they are functional atheists. They say they believe, but their lives aren't touched by Christianity at all. And this letter, the Apostle Paul is talking to first-generation persecuted Christians, I mean, just like Cambodia, and following Jesus Christ has cost them dearly in ways that we can't even really imagine. But here's the thing. Whether it's Cambodia or Philippi or here... We need to hear this. Not all of the Philippians made it. And the fact of the matter is, is not all of us are going to make it. I mean, I don't say this as a gloom and doom thing. I say this as reality that already in the last year, I know of several people who have literally said, I don't believe this anymore. And they've walked away. People from GVF. Not giving up on church, giving up on Christ. We need to hear this. Text is Philippians chapter 3, and I'm actually going to give you time to look it up. If you get your cell phone, pull out that app. Let's, let's light this place up. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17, and we're going to go through chapter 4, verse 1, and it starts like this. If you don't have the text, listen to me closely. It says this, join together and following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as, uh, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Now, you guys know what this means, right? Do what we do. Imitate us. Now, if you're a parent, you know exactly what this means, right? Do you remember those itty-bitty days when a baby, all it does is what? Sleep, play, and poo. And so if you're not, if they're not sleeping and you're not cleaning up poo, what do you do? Well, you get on the bed and you hold them and you look at them and you make a funny face and they make a funny face and you stick out your tongue and they stick out your tongue and you roll your tongue and they roll their tongue and it's so cute. Like they're, they intently watch you and then they imitate whatever you do. And it's super cute until one day they get a little bit older and then you hear your anger or your selfishness or something you shouldn't have said come out of their mouth. And you realize, wait, they're intently watching me and imitating me. 
That parents, that, that how we live and love and work and eat and spend and don't spend and laugh and treat our spouse, all of this indelibly marks our children. It shapes their little hearts and minds. That everything we do, they, they see it and they're like a little mirror, right? And the Apostle Paul, he's going to say the same thing is true in the family of God. That this is the way it should be. This is the way it's supposed to be. In fact, he's going to give us a word picture that's going to help us see what this is like. It's, it's, when he talks about you are, you, I, you have us as a model. The word model there literally means type or imprint or form. So this right here, you know what this is? This is a one of a kind Roman signet ring. Now I found this online and you can actually own this right now. Let's show them the price tag on this. Isn't that amazing? Worth every penny, I'm sure. And that red carnelian stone there that some ancient Roman sculptor carved in this guy's face into the stone. So this is not just a ring. This is not just a luxury. The purpose of it is that this guy could take Mr. Carnelian here. He could take it. He could pour, melt some wax, pour it out on something. And then as it's cooling, he'd take his ring and press it into the, to the wax and create his own personal seal. This is his official signature. This is his legally binding signet. The, the function of this is that he was the only person in the world who had this particular ring and it never left his hand. So if you saw his seal, you knew the hand that it came from. If you saw this seal, you knew the one from whom it came. And the Apostle Paul is saying this, we are that, we are a signet, we are a mold. And you know who's molded us? Jesus Christ. Like if you, you flip back a couple of verses, he says in chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ. And he, he literally says, I want to know the power of his resurrection, but I literally want to become like him in his death. Do you know what the wording is there? To be formed, to be shaped. Theologians call this having a cross-shaped life. That our lives should be so impressed by the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ that it literally forms our souls, it forms our thoughts, it forms our little hearts and minds that we, when people look at us, they see the death, life, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That it's pressed into us. That if you see us, you will see the hand from which it came. It's a one of a kind. So get this, the Apostle Paul, he's, he's talking to the Philippians and he says, you know what our lives look like. You know what a cross-shaped life looks like. You know what it looks like to live your whole life in response, being pressed in from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You've seen it in me and Luke and Silas and Timothy. And now keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Look for people whose lives are shaped by Christ and follow their example. Look for people who have that imprint in them that when you see them, you say, that looks like Jesus Christ, like a work of Jesus Christ. That looks like sacrificial love. That looks like true forgiveness. That looks like grace. When you see that, you copy those people. You imitate them. You follow them. The Apostle Paul is actually going to use a particular word here. He's going to use the word, keep your eyes on those who live. Literally, he's going to say, walk as we do. And this, remember, the Apostle Paul, he called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. Just a couple verses earlier. In Hebrew, the word to walk is halak. The path that you walk on is called halaka. Well, in Hebrew, halaka doesn't just mean the path you walk on. You know what it also means? It is the name for all the Jewish laws and customs for everything in the Bible prior to this, 
Now, now I want you to pay attention to this. This is, this is a very Hebrew way of thinking. To walk and walking. What does walking have to do with the laws, with the Torah, with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus? What does it have to do with where you live and how you take care of mildew and what you wear? Well, for the Jew, that you couldn't possibly know what the scriptures mean until you've walked them. You have to walk the path. That it's not about just knowing it. This is a type of knowledge that can't be picked up in a book, can't be downloaded online. You can't just Google it real quick. That if you want to know this, if you want to understand, if you want to, if you really want to wrap your mind and your life around this, you have to walk it. And the Apostle Paul is saying this very thing. That right here, if you want to know what it looks like to have a Christ-shaped life, it's not about intellectual knowledge. It is, but it's not just about that. Like, I, I hope, I hope, I hope that you guys have hundreds of scriptures memorized. And I hope you have such a, a personal relationship with Jesus that he shows up at breakfast every morning and gives you a big kiss. I hope you have that type of experience with him. And I, and I hope that you can go to seminary and have like these historical facts and you know the difference between halakha and halakha and you know if I mispronounce or put the wrong emphasis on it. I hope you know all of that. I really do. But the fact of the matter is none of that matters if you're not walking what you already know. He sure seems to be saying in this context of standing firm in your faith that if you don't live out your faith, you might very well lose your faith. You guys know Tim Keller? He's a scholar, pastor, author, New York City. Um, I was listening to a seminar of his, actually just before I came here as pastor, but this one little bit just really stood out to me. He was talking about his own mentor. He had some mentor, I forget which guy it was, but it was one of those old British pastors who was like all prim and proper and, and ancient um, I'm not sure which one. He had this mentor, and he said the mentor sat him down one day and said, you know what, all the time we have these, these young people raised up in the church. They say they believe. They know all the facts. They've been through catechism. They know all their Bible verses. They know all the right answers. But then they go off to university, and they come back, and they just say, you know, I don't believe any of this anymore. Jesus isn't real to me. And you know what the first question, this prim, proper little British guy used to ask them. He would be sitting in his study and he would lean in and say, so who are you sleeping with? Like, what? Like, they're having these deep intellectual struggles over their faith and you're, you're probing their sex life. What are you doing? And he said, you know, the, the thing is, is I found that over the years, almost nobody actually loses their faith over the intellectual questions. That people lose their virginity before they lose their faith almost every time. That when you in your mind embrace lust or any other sin and you make it okay in your mind, then you have to, you have to do something with the fact that Jesus said it's not okay. So once you make that okay in your mind, once you decide I'm not listening to Jesus on this, then suddenly talking to Jesus' prayer becomes really useless. Suddenly reading the Bible becomes really uninteresting. Suddenly going to church just feels like a guilt fest. And then suddenly, one day, they wake up and realize, I don't believe any of this. If you don't live your faith, you very well might lose it. The next verse 
verse 18, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about this specifically. This is where he starts crying. He says, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again with tears, he's weeping literally here, many live as enemies of the cross of the Christ. Why, why do you weep? So if you're watching the evening news one night and you see there's a tragic fatal accident on 422, do you weep? Some of you might. You're very sensitive souls, but probably not. Even if you're kind of like, oh, that stinks. If you just wait 30 seconds, they're going to have some ridiculous story about like a cat that plays the piano or something stupid, right? Right after that. And next up, and we're just going to pretend like death never happened. You don't weep over that. But I tell you, if you were walking out of here, your phone rang, and you got a phone call that it was your kid's, or your spouse, or your close friend who died in a fatal accident on 422, you weep. We weep for those we care about deeply. We weep for family. We weep for those close to us. I want you to see this here. When the Apostle Paul is here talking about enemies of the cross, he's not talking about someone over there, someone that he can just lob bombs on. He's he's not talking about someone that he hates and he doesn't even know. He's talking about someone close. He's... He's talking about someone that went on a mission trip with us, someone that served in our children's ministry, someone you've, you've known for years, someone in your small group. He's talking about family. But now they live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he comes up with this list describing their action. He says, their destiny is destruction, verse 19, that they're destroying themselves. Their God is their stomach. I want you to get this. No longer do they consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. No. Now they value their career and their safety and their happiness and their pleasures more than they value Jesus. Their glory is their shame. Their glory is their shame. Things that you should be ashamed of. Your lust and greed and hatred and envy and selfishness and consumerism personal ambition, self-righteousness, they brag about these things. And their mind is set on earthly things. They pretend like they're never going to be judged. They pretend like they're never going to die. They pretend like God doesn't exist. When you hear that list, destruction, God is their stomach, glory is their shame, their mind set on earthly things, it's, it's easy. I don't I might be imposing on you. It's easy for me. To picture like some big barbecue in hell, you know, Stalin and Hitler and Bernie Madoff and a cokehead and, but, but when you look at the text, I, I think it's important to remember that just a few verses before, the Apostle Paul told us that his main opponents, the dogs, the mutilators of the flesh are actually moral people. They're people who go to church. They're people who are super religious. That there are two ways to reject Jesus. There are two ways to be an enemy of the cross of Christ. And one way is being irreligious. It's true. You thumb your nose at Jesus and say, I don't want you to rule over me. I don't want you to die for me. I don't need you. You reject the cross of Christ because I don't need anyone to save me. But the other way, equally damning, is the way of religion. You say, you know, Jesus, I'm so glad you died for me. Now I'm going to do all this religious stuff because I know God will love me if I read my Bible and go to small group and attend church and do all the things I'm supposed to do. And I know God will love me when I stop sinning and stop, stop doing this and stop doing this. You reject Jesus Christ 
the fact that he already died for you, you trusting your own goodness to save you, and both become enemies of the cross of Christ. I want you to see this list right here, and just, I'm not going to, I spent the last month kind of beating this dead horse. Let me just point out the fact that this right here can be equally applied to someone who's super religious and someone who's completely irreligious. Whether you're religious or not, a religious person lives like there is no God, but a religious person, they live like they can control God. Irreligious people glory in self-expression. Religious people glory in self-righteousness. Irreligious people openly seek their self, self-actualization. Religious people, people openly seek their selves, self-righteousness. Both are headed to destruction and both reject the cross. The, the whole point of this passage is I hope that's not us. That's not us because, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you go to the island of Penang, it's just off the coast of Malaysia here. My brother lives there, and what you'll find is just this exotic island, jungles and wildlife. You'll find natives living in simplicity. You will find these uh, poisonous pythons. You will find dangerous tropical diseases. In fact, uh, my doctor thinks I contracted dengue fever while I was there. You will find it is exotic and wild. There are monkeys, monkey beach. You can go there, monkeys, just cover the beaches. And you know what you'll also find? If you push through all of this and you survive all the diseases and you push through the jungle, you know what you will see? This perfect little British city. Like, I mean, perfect. Like, it literally looks like a city from, from Britain was pulled up and accidentally dropped in the middle of the jungle. Like, what is this? And if you do a little research, you're going to find that in 1786, Captain Francis Light planted the Union Jack on the corner of this island and declared, this is now British soil. Right? This is part of colonialism, that even though it's 6,367 miles away from London, if you go there today, you will get a taste of Great Britain. That the whole point of this is that we take the world and we make it British. So they didn't just bring British people there. They brought Britishness there. So you'll see British architecture and British art and British laws. Like people still drive on the wrong side of the road there. And British cuisine, which I have no idea why you'd export that. Please tell me. And you will find... (laughs) If you go there though, it literally feels like you're walking into some like little village outside of Bath or something. You're like, ah. Okay, so what's my point? If you went to Philippi at that time, it was a colony. It was true. It's that Philippi existed in the province of Macedonia, but it was Roman. It was a Roman colony. And there people acted like Romans. They dressed like Romans. They thought like Romans. They laughed like Romans. They ate like Romans. They lived like Romans. The architecture, the laws, the food, everything reflected Rome. That, that if, if you were just being dropped there in the middle of the town, you might actually mistake yourself and think that you were actually in Rome when you were there at the time. That's what they did. They tried to imitate everything. They, they were not not Macedonians, they were Romans to the core. And the Apostle Paul is going to pick this idea up right here and he's going to say, that's it. We are citizens of heaven. 
Now, I know you don't live in heaven right now. Just look around. It's obvious you don't live in heaven right now. But don't, don't be mistaken. We're citizens of heaven. That this is God's colonialism that he has planted for us right here. The church is our colony. Your house is an outpost of the empire. Your yard, your dirt, it's kingdom soil. We are outposts of the kingdom that Christ has planted his flag in Phoenixville and Wayne and King of Prussia and Audubon and your yard. And that when someone comes to your yard, you know what it should feel like? It should feel like this looks like heaven. The architecture, the art, the things we laugh at, the things we think about. It looks like, it looks like God's kingdom here on earth. It looks like thy will be done on, he- on earth as it is in heaven. That your house and your career and your life and the food you eat and the way you treat your spouse and the way you treat your kids, it should be a taste of heaven because we're an outpost, we're a colony, we're citizens, not of this world, but of that world. It should look like in the middle of this world, someone has taken God's kingdom and dropped it, plopped it right in the middle when they meet you. And what this passage is saying is may people see us and see that we walk, we live in a way that is so unmistakably different that there's no confusion. We are citizens of heaven and that in this place and in my home, Jesus is Lord. He rules here. The passage ends like this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my crown and my joy. I want you to hear Paul's piling up words. He's running out of words. He loves these people so much. You're my brothers and sisters, and I love you, and I long for you, and you're my joy, and you're my crown, and you're my dear friends. So stand firm in the Lord in this way. Therefore, since I love you more than words can say, Since you've seen my example, you've seen what it looks like to have a life shaped by the cross. Since you know what happens to those who reject the cross. You've seen it. You've seen when someone walks away. You know what's happened to them. Since you are citizens of heaven and since you know that your Savior is coming. You know what he pleads with us? Stand firm. Stand firm. I thought about having some big giant closing where I explain exactly what this means, but I don't think that will help because I think some of us are tempted to fall away. Some of us are tempted to not follow. Some of us think that we can live just like this is our home and still get some like get into heaven free type of ticket, but we don't want to be with Jesus. It's really weird that people think they're going to spend eternity with Jesus, but they don't even like Jesus right now. Isn't that odd? Isn't that weird? People say, I want to go to heaven, but I don't actually want to be with Jesus. I don't want him to rule over me. That I want to be in the kingdom, but I don't want him as my king telling me what to do. Isn't that weird? So what we're going to do is we're going to, band's going to come up. I'm going to ask a few questions, and then Eric's just going to put some verses up here for us to just reflect on. And I don't want to speak anymore. I want God to speak to you. We'll close in a song here in a minute. If you would, close your eyes with me and just listen to these questions and then I'll pray for us. Am I following those whose lives have been shaped by Christ? Who are those people in your life? Are you following them? Has my life 
being shaped by Jesus Christ? Has it been formed and is the imprint clear on my life? Does my life look like the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? What form am I pressing on others around me? My kids, my coworkers, my church, my small group. Do I say I believe but then not walk the walk? Am I walking the path to become who God is calling me to be? Has Jesus planted a flag in my house? If someone came into my house, would they experience what it's like to be part of the kingdom? Not in full, but in part. Would they see what it looks like for a spouse to treat their spouse in the kingdom and for a parent to love their kids? Would they experience the forgiveness and grace and beauty of the kingdom if they came to my house?